It isn't as though amillennials deny the millennium. They understand it as I've described it, as what is true in the period throughout history between Christ's first and second comings. It's now. Welcome to Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss everything from Reformed theology, cultural issues, and all things seminary. This is episode 69, and I'm your host, Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for joining us. We're in the final stretch of Dr. Venema's series of tough topics in the field of eschatology, the doctrine of last things, finishing off today with the Millennium Part 2, describing the conditions of the millennium and what exactly is taking place during these thousand years. Tune in to find out. Seeing this as a new point of view between Christ's first and second coming would suggest that we are living in the millennium now, or are we? Describe what's going on in the millennium. Is the millennium um, and the reality of it taking place here on earth, or is it specifically in the intermediate state where Christ is reigning with the saints? Well, that's a big question, but maybe I could start here. Uh, It's particularly verses 1 through 6 that give you the details of what John saw as it relates to the so-called millennium. He uses an expression nowhere else used in the New Testament, and not really used this way precisely anywhere in the Old Testament, of a period, a kilia, from which we get the English word kiliasm, Mm -hmm. Or mille in the Latin translation of kilia, 1,000. Millennium is just a Latinized way of speaking of the 1,000-year period that John sees. And he mentions it, I think it's no less than six times. Uh, So the six times in all of the Bible that the millennium is mentioned are in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. And this is how he describes, it breaks into two nice divisions. The first three verses describe what is the most significant feature of this period. It begins with the binding of Satan. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, which is imagery, language, meaning he's on a mission, whether this is the Son of God, not necessarily the case, a heavenly messenger, angel, who is doing heaven's bidding with God's authority. There's no indication of a struggle, of any likelihood that he's unsuccessful, a mission impossible. No, he comes from heaven with divine authority in the name of Christ, and he holds in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seizes the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and binds him for a thousand years. Interestingly, that language of the the devil or the dragon actually is how it begins. The ancient, it picks up on language throughout the book of Revelation, mm-hmm. especially in chapter 12, where Christ is depicted as conquering, as he's the same dragon, ancient serpent, devil, and Satan is cast out of heaven uh, because he's defeated, vanquished by the blood of the Lamb and the testimony of the Lamb's people. Well, here it's God's angel who seizes this arch enemy of God and of his people and binds him for a period of a thousand years, seals it up over him, so that he, which is a way of saying he's not getting loose unless God authorizes it. He's sealed up under God's superintendence, 
so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, I think the best way to get at the imagery here is comparing Scripture with Scripture, is to ask the question, if you were to view this broadly from the perspective of redemptive history, what fits? Uh, When did Satan have the wherewithal by God's permission to deceive the nations? Well, broadly speaking, you could argue throughout the Old Testament era. Yeah. When he called out from among the nations and peoples, one people, uh, first beginning with Abraham and his descendants after him, a peculiar people among the peoples and nations of the earth, uh, who remained in darkness. The people walking in darkness have seen the great light. Uh, But in the fullness of time, God comes to us in fulfillment of Old Testament promise in the person of his sons, and the Gospels tell us what kingdom did Christ preach. He preached the gospel of the coming presence, the coming near of God's kingdom, and the language binds him for a thousand years. The gospel writers use that very language, that same verb, to speak when our Lord, for example, in his discourse says, you know, how am I going to plunder the uh, enemy's house unless I first, uh, the strong man's house, unless I first bind him? Or the disciples, when they come back, having gone out in Christ's name, healing and declaring the presence of the kingdom, come back, uh, Christ responds by saying, well, I see Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Yeah. Um, what we have is, and of course, the Gospels conclude with the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. Going, therefore, now that I have all authority in heaven and earth, Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching, baptizing. Now, all of that is to say that the imagery, this isn't to be understood literally. This is a description in the way of image of the historical event redemptive event and moment of transition in history, now that Christ has come, he shall reign until he puts all his enemies uh, under subjection to him, 1 Corinthians 15. And it's a period of a thousand years. Maybe I should go straight to that. That's always the question. Is that a literal period or is it symbolic? I think the question answers itself. We we know it's not a thousand. (laughs) It's not a thousand. The book of Revelation is replete with numbers, symbolic numbers, the most important being functions of sevens, twelves, and uh, thousands or tens, tens of thousands, myriads of angels. Well, a thousand years functions scripturally as a kind of symbolic way of referring to a very comprehensive and large, extensive period of time, Mm -hmm. which is within God's superintendence, Um, but it's not used very often literally. I mean, I could just give you a few quick illustrations um, to a thousand generations in the Ten Commandments. Does that mean after the 1,000th, God ceases to show his love and faithfulness? The cattle on a thousand hills says, you mean the psalmist didn't know there were more than 1,000 hills? Uh, Days with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a way of expressing however long in the flat, literalistic sense, you know, is it 999 years in one month or is it, what difference does it make? It's a very extended period of time. It's comprehensive. It's inclusive. It is all that belongs to what God intends to do during this period in his purpose. 
that it it occurs. And the second thing I wanted to observe is the core consequence that is identified in so many words in this vision of what follows upon Satan's being bound is that he is no longer able to deceive the nations. Another way of saying that is he will not be able to prevent or frustrate the triumph of the Lamb through the testimony to him that goes out to and among all the nations. And this distinguishes the period of history in which... So I would say this is a vision which, if you were to locate it more um, prosaically within a simple gospel of what transpired when Christ came, it's a visionary way of saying this is a turning point. This is a decisive moment with the coming of Christ, his life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost. We see Satan being curtailed in his ability, capacity to hold the nations under his deceptive wiles. And the gospel is going to go out with the sure and certain promise that all those whom God the Father has promised to give to his Son, they will surely come to him. This is not a mission impossible. Um, But it's not the whole period, but it's very striking how the imagery symbolism is also used regarding a short period. It's called a micro-season, a little while toward the end that closes out the story that Satan is permitted once again for a season to deceive the nations. But... The whole accent of the imagery is to encourage the people of God uh, not to be fearful, not to be pessimistic, not to be discouraged, but to live out of the confidence that we are in these last days when the word of God, a day of salvation, as the author of Hebrews says, is going forth to and among the nations and the deceiver, the archenemy of God and his people is incapable by God's purpose to frustrate or prevent yeah. that from being successful. Not to deny that Satan still wrecks havoc on this earth. Oh, I mean, absolutely. He's, a, he's, a, he's like a, a lion seeking whom to devour. Um, I heard someone describe it as if he was a dog on on a on a chain link um, in a stake in the ground. He's got his perimeter that he's able to wreck havoc in, but beyond that, there's nothing else that he can do, and that's that's what this, this binding is, that he will no longer deceive the nations. No, one, of the, one of the theologians love to call that the distinction between the decisive victory that was won at Christ's first coming and the ultimate outcome, which is now insured. It's guaranteed to come to pass. It's like the difference between D-Day and V-Day. I mean, the enemy may still um, flail about, and, you know, the imagery of Revelation 12 is quite different, isn't it? He's cast down to the earth. Yeah. This is one of the reasons people will argue, dispensationalists and premillennials will argue, this can't be anything that's true in history now because the devil still continues to do his, his work. Um, I think it's a failure of imagination. There's a great essay by Fowler White. I can't give you the details on where it can be found. But he, he compares those two passages, and he, are, he makes a really strong case, I think, for showing that they really parallel each other, yeah. even though the language is very different and the perspective, angle of vision is distinct. So moving on in this vision, what is going on with this language of resurrection, the first resurrection, um, what's going on with the saints reigning with Christ, and uh, what what goes beyond that? Um, enlighten us on that uh, portion of the text. Well, this is where it really gets complicated, and 
the dispute is most fierce. Uh, there are some things that are clear. Then I saw thrones. That language in the book of Revelation, as Hukumar nicely maintains, is always used of a scene that is in God's presence in the heavenly court, heaven, the throne room. Uh, so you already have a little bit of a textual indication that what John is now seeing is not all of history as it moves forward, the gospel of the kingdom is preached, and the nations are not able or are no longer being deceived and are being gathered to him. He also sees thrones, sees thrones. Presumably, I would say right up front, thrones in heaven. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Actually, he's drawing out of visions in Daniel, the saints in glory who share in the reign of the king, uh, is what he's seeing there, uh, to whom judgment was given. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Now, he brings forward a theme here that is running through the whole book of Revelation. In this time between the times of Christ's first coming and second coming, as the gospel goes out into the world, there are those who, for the testimony of Jesus, in their season of patient endurance, may suffer martyrdom uh, for their refusal to receive the mark of the beast. Um, and so he's accenting a theme in the book that they are in their tribulation even, still conquerors through fellowship with Christ. Um, there's some debate about interpreters whether the objects whom John sees are exclusively those who were martyred saints. I think it's not exclusive, but it's especially. That's a better translation or sense of it. Among those whom John sees who have either fallen asleep or been martyred, uh, died, because notice he says, I see all the souls. Now, I know that you can use the word souls for persons, but in this case, when he talks about some who were beheaded and so on, were likely drawn, were, I think, inexorably drawn to say John is seeing the saints themselves, those whom he describes in chapter 6, who are in glory in the heavenly court before the throne room of God, crying out the souls before the altar uh, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the vindication of the saints and of his people. Those are the, the, the ones whom he sees. And he says, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Now, here's the crux of the issue. Uh, those who have a literal view of the millennium as a period after Christ's coming, Christ comes, the saints are raised from the dead, that's the first resurrection, and they live with Christ on the earth for a thousand years. And they like to say resurrections are resurrections are resurrections. So this first resurrection has to be a bodily resurrection. It has to be what resurrections are. Uh, being raised from death to life by putting on a new resurrection body, an immortal body, with which they can then reign with Christ for a thousand years. Well, I want to point out a couple of things before that is too quickly conceded. We're told something about this resurrection that's quite unique. It's the only place in the New Testament or anywhere in Scripture that I know of that we have quite distinctly a first resurrection distinguished from a second resurrection. And why is it called the first? 
Well, it's called the first because those who experience it, they came to life, or literally they lived and reigned with Christ and are not subject to the power of the second death. Now, one of the interesting things is if you compare Scripture with Scripture, and that's a big hermeneutical principle that is vital in reading Revelation 20, you could ask the question, are there any indications that believers, not yet having experienced the resurrection of the body, experience a resurrection unto life that allows us to say of them that they live and they reign with Christ. And I think the answer to that question is pretty straightforward, John 11. He who believes in me, though he die yet, mm. says Jesus, they will, he will live. Yeah. He who believes in me will never die. Uh, Paul uses language descriptive of the experience through union with Christ, of being buried with him, raised with him, uh, reigning with him. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, you, you could respond to that by saying, well, that's true of all believers, whether they've been martyred or they've fallen asleep in the Lord, those who are still living upon the earth. And so that can't be what Paul has in, or John has in view here with this vision. But I, I do think it's relevant because if it's true of all believers, it certainly is true and is not taken from them by virtue of their having died. They continue in fellowship with Christ to be victorious. And I would argue that this is quite straightforwardly a vision of the saints in glory in the intermediate state. Mm -hmm. That's why he sees thrones. But what he sees is they reign with Christ. They are not subject to the power, and I didn't really say anything about that, but the power of the second death. And the power of the second death is not the power of the losing of this body. It's the being cast away from God's presence into the lake of fire, which is the second death, hell itself. Yeah. It's, it's a spiritual form of death. So here, here's the interesting thing. You, have a, you can't see it when we're just talking, but you have a first resurrection that has a spiritual benefit contrasted with a second resurrection that has no it has a spiritual benefit in the sense that it releases you from the power of the second death you have an implicit because it's interesting the passage doesn't refer to a second resurrection but if you have a second resurrection namely a physical resurrection that's not a resurrection that delivers you from the power of the lake of fire and our Lord says in the gospel, don't be afraid of those who can destroy the body, but be afraid of the one who is able to destroy body and soul in hell. That's the second death. So you have two resurrections answering to two kinds of death, physical death, spiritual death. Believers may not yet be, and these believers certainly were not, released from the power of physical death in terms of their being now in the intermediate state. But they have, they have a victory in Christ such that they, in union with him, experience power over the second death, and they will eventually, together with all the saints, enjoy the fullness of that victory and having power over not only spiritual death, but the death of the body in the resurrection. So I, that's, that's my understanding of it. And... Um, 
I think it's the debate really does. Maybe I should go back up a moment and and point out that you really have to kind of go backward in the reading of this vision. Um, what you make of the first and second resurrection has a lot to do with other assumptions about Christ coming before the millennium and not after the millennium. I could go into some other issues which have to do with if this is a bodily resurrection, you do have an interesting circumstance. You have some of those who are alive and live in the millennium who are not saints, believers at Christ's coming, who live together with, alongside of, persons who have, by participating in the first resurrection, been glorified in immortal bodies, presumably not marrying nor being given in marriage. And so you have a kind of millennium in the future after Christ's coming where you have what appears to be the fullness of the glorification, the new creation, consummation for the saints, but it's a half Mm-hmm. It's sort of a something between what has been true for the church from the time of Christ's first coming until this millennium commences, but we're not there yet. And again, I go back to a point I made earlier. It, it just seems to me that on the analogy of Scripture, there's a distinction between this present age, between Christ's first and second coming, and there is, with his second coming, the introduction of the final state, a consummated state, a not partially, even more partially realized state that is somewhere between what is true now and what will ultimately be true on the other side of the millennium. It's a, it's a very odd, it is, I think, a talking point for discussions with premillennialists. What I thought in the kingdom which was to come, there would neither marry nor be given in marriage, and yet in your kingdom, the millennial kingdom, they will marry. There will be death there. So this view that you've been discussing is known as what? Oh, it's commonly known as amillennialism, but that's a very bad term because it means literally no millennium. And it affirms the millennium. What it doesn't do is say the millennium is a peculiar, more restricted period in the future, either before Christ comes, as in classic or contemporary post-millennialism, or a period after Christ comes of of a literal thousand years, as in dispensationalism. I tried the idea of calling this view, which is commonly termed amillennial, call it now millennial. Or uh, Jay Adams uses the language of um, realized millennialism. Which is an interesting term, but you know how it is with terms. You have to have nice, neat parallels. So you have amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, and so on. So we have to live with the term, I suppose, amillennial, but it isn't as though amillennials deny the millennium. They understand it, as I've described it, as what is true in the period throughout history between Christ's first and second comings. It's now. Well, that's a wrap for our series of Tough Topics in Eschatology with Dr. Venema. If you want to explore this subject even further, I encourage you to visit MidAmerica's online bookstore at marsbooksonline.com 
where you'll find Dr. Venema's book, The Promise of the Future. It's a comprehensive survey of the Bible's teaching on the last things and describes the contours of our Christian hope for the future. There's even a study guide that you can purchase alongside it, as well as an abridged version of the book titled Christ and the Future. Next on the docket is Reverend Andrew Compton, Associate Professor of Old Testament Studies, who for the next few weeks will speak a little bit on prophecy, how to read prophetic books of the Bible, and who will look more intensely at some portions of the book of Daniel. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts on YouTube and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.